This morning we begin as followers of Jesus Christ a journey into the Old Testament to a book that maybe you've not heard preached before, the book of Esther. We come at Esther as people who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and confess Jesus as Lord, and we interpret all of human history, our own experience, as well as the documents of the Old Covenant from this perspective of Jesus as Lord. You will find Esther at the end of the historical books which begin with Joshua and go through Esther. Some people think it's on the seam between the historical books and the literary books, which begin with Job, because it really fits in both genres. And as you read through the book of Esther, you will see it is a masterpiece in its literary form, and it keeps you reading. It's a page-turner. It's an effort by the enemies of God's people to exterminate them which would have ended the hope of the Messiah and our rescue through God's grace. So it's a strategic book which recounts an important historical moment in the life of the people of God called Israel. The book takes place historically in a place called Persia. It is the Persian Empire. You remember that the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, and when they did, they took not only the goods in the temple, but they took the people themselves and exiled them. It's called the Babylonian exile. While they are in exile in Babylon, which is hundreds of years uh, or miles east of Israel in Jerusalem, the Medes and the Persians take over the empire. The writing on the wall comes, thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. And the kingdom falls that night to the Medes and the Persians. So we have here in the Persian Empire the largest empire, some believe, in the ancient world. Today we would call the area which encompasses the Persian Empire, we would call it Turkey, Pakistan, Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, a large part of Egypt, Arabia, and Sudan. A huge part of the ancient world governed by this king mentioned in this text in a story from the 5th century B.C. Verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Susa is north of the Persian Gulf, about 100 miles straight north in what we now call Iran. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet 
lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who are in the citadel of Susa. And there follows a description of the glory of that place, the wonder of that place. Verse 9 tells us that while he has this banquet, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, listed there, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. And you have the recounting of his speech. Verse 16. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media which cannot be repealed that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. This story sets the context for the book of Esther. It is a strange and unusual world, a world you have never lived in, a society and culture that you have never lived in. It's an ancient culture, 2,500 years old. And as we come to the book of Esther, this first chapter tells us where this Jewish woman lived, what she lived under, and how she operated in the confines of her day. The king is neither good nor wise. 
I conclude after reading it over and over again that King Xerxes almost needs a dunce cap on. The more I read about him, the less I respect this man. He is not the president. He's not a congressman or a senator. He is the despot. He is the dictator. He is the monarch. There are no limits to his term. There is no check and balance to his power. When you read this, you thank God that you live today in the land of the free and the home of the brave. All right? You thank God you have government of the people, by the people, for the people. Don't you ever forget it. It had been a different day for Esther if she had not been born in Persia and exiled in Persia under this king. The king is neither good nor wise. He is self-absorbed. He is ostentatious. He is arrogant. He spends six months throwing a party before he's even completed three years of his reign. Resources spent on a party six months long that surely were needed by the people in his realm. Attention given to the matters of this party when the needs of state go unmet. That is this king. The king is insecure in who he is, which is not unusual for people in power. The trappings of power are important to him because he wants people to respect him. And he's not sure they would respect him if they really knew who he was. I see in him this insecurity that needs not only wealth and power and the deference of people purchased for, to be his friends, but I, I see in him this insecurity when he also needs a beautiful woman by his side. See, beauty is one of the three great values of a world that's strictly secular. Money, fortune, intellect, and beauty. If you're the smartest guy in the class, you can get some respect. If you're the most beautiful girl in the class, you can get some respect. If you're the wealthiest guy in the class, you can get some respect. But if you don't have these values in a secular world, you're devalued. And Xerxes needs all these trappings to make him feel like the man he wants to be. He's neither good nor wise, but God is still able. The story of Esther, which never mentions God, by the way, and is unique in the 66 books of the Bible in that there is no religious language in the entire book. The story is told this way to emphasize that even in a secular, unbelieving world, God is still able and God is in control. Hey, and it's okay with me if you confess that every day when you wake up. 
Maybe you don't have the politicians you want in office. Maybe you don't have the figures of authority that you'd like to have. Think about Esther under a king, a despot, who is neither good nor wise. What can God possibly do? If anybody felt helpless, that would be her. But God is still able. And God's still able in your life. You need to let go of the fear and frustration that abides in you because you think somebody else is in control. Let it go. God is in control. You know you've never been when you think about it. It's the illusion of control. There are some things you control, but there's so much you do not and the proper posture, whatever day, whatever government, whatever time, culture, and society, the proper post posture for a human being is to say, God, I'm trusting you. I believe in you, and I'm trusting you. And I'm getting up today, and I'm going to enjoy my day. I'm going to enjoy peace and joy from your Holy Spirit. I'm going to enjoy the beautiful things you've made around me. This is going to be a day that is filled with me thanking you for all the blessings of life, regardless of the of the trouble that may be there and surely is, the circumstances that may be difficult and often are. The king is neither good nor wise, but God is still able. The king is drunken and angry, but God is still able. Vashti has a husband who is drunken. It's unfortunate, but it's true. He's at a party for six months. I guess he's been on a binge for seven days. The spirits in the bottle have changed the spirits in his heart. He does something that probably he wouldn't do if he'd been sober. He calls in his lovely wife to parade before his drunken friends. King Lemuel's mother took the privilege of her motherly position to give the king some advice. You can read it in Proverbs 31, the first eight or nine verses of Proverbs 31. They are followed by the virtuous woman poem. But prior to that, there are these teachings that King Lemuel passes on from his mother. His mother has a very terse statement to make to her son the king she warns him about women and she warns him about alcohol those are the two things that king lemuel's mother wants to highlight in the few words she's got to share with her royal son she says to him don't you give in to the bottle because you are king. Some people turn that inside out. And they say, like King Xerxes, I'm the king, I'll drink whatever I want, thank you. I'll act any way I want, thank you. And one day, Xerxes is going to stand before the judge of all the earth and give an answer for how he handled the throne. Lemuel knew it too. If you believe that God is the judge of all the earth, then when you get responsibility... You especially examine how you use mind-altering drugs, how you drink alcohol, how you treat other people. King Lemuel's mother said, 
you got to avoid the bottle, son, because there are people counting on you, particularly the poor in your kingdom. And if you're ever going to deliver justice to them and pay attention and be a good king, you got to forego what maybe other people can do. Maybe they can imbibe, but not you. You've got authority. You've got a responsibility. You've got to be sober, son. Your judgment needs to be sound. Every day you sit on the throne. I hope you'll take that to heart as somebody who has authority over other people if you're the boss. Have you ever reported to a drunken boss? I can tell you I have. I have showed up work at work sober and reported to a boss who was stinking drunk, stumbling drunk. Not once, many times. It's an abuse of your position and authority. As a child of God and a follower of Jesus, you must see the position that you hold as a gift from him and a stewardship from him. And you do your work not unto men, you do it unto God. That's the responsibility you have. You have supervision over people. You control in some ways whether they work here or not, whether they get a paycheck or not, how they handle their position. And your sobriety is vitally important to their future and their good life. So you take it seriously. Not King Xerxes. King Xerxes gets drunk, as do all his friends. When they're feeling mighty good, they call for the queen. Do you have a husband who abuses alcohol? I'm just asking. Or maybe a wife. Do they get angry when you don't do what they say when they're drunk? How common is that? Vashti says, no, I'm not coming in to parade before your drunken friends. There are people who write commentaries in the Bible who think she's at fault and say, she shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't have refused the king. Well, we don't know all the circumstances, all right? But I respect what she said. And I'm with Matthew Henry who says, no person in authority ought to issue a command that can be reasonably refused by a reasonable person. Say, no, I'm not going to do that. I think she was right. And the drunken king gets angry at his beautiful wife. He burns with anger. He is furious. I suspect, if we knew the whole thing, that anger was sort of the mode that this king used to intimidate other people, which is often the case. Often our anger, our flaming anger, our rage, our furious anger is a way of manipulating people around us, and he gets mighty upset. Do you have anger that you have to deal with? Is there anybody in your life that's out of control angry? Do you ever back up and look at your life and say, God, why'd you place these people over me? Why would I get a boss like this or a spouse like this? You're the sovereign God. Why did I end up in this position? Do you ever chave under the limitations that you experience because of the control and authority of other people? 
Here's my message. God is still on the throne. God's in control. God can use you in the midst of that trouble you're in. Although it seems to be distant and far from the purpose and plan of God, God is in the midst of a difficult circumstance that is you. And he can do beyond what you could even ask or think, even in that difficult situation. So I'm challenging you to trust God in the middle of it, okay? Now, this is the guy who will soon be Esther's husband. And we shall see that in future chapters. He is neither good nor wise. He is drunken and angry. And he treats women like they are arm candy, okay? He wants to parade his wife. Because he, he doesn't want to just be the wealthiest and the, and the most powerful man in the world. He wants to have the best-looking wife in the world. And some people think that the drunks in the party had an argument about which place had the prettiest women. We all know New York has the prettiest women, right? I mean, three times in a row, Miss America. Well, there's no right answer to where are the prettiest women good <laughs> all right but he wants the arm candy see he treats women like decoration ladies if you ever wish you'd lived 2500 years ago just remember your property back then okay I mean you have very little rights you know why there's so much concern for widows in the Bible because they don't inherit their husband's estates in the United States, widows control a lot of the wealth of the country, but not in ancient Persia. Not in the ancient world. That's why there was so much concern for widows in the first century in the church. Because to be widowed was often to be in abject poverty. No. Vashti and Esther, their property. King Xerxes, he's got a harem. He's got plenty of women. He's got a queen. He's got plenty of women. He treats them like meat. How does that feel? To be treated like a piece of meat. Like just flesh. No brain, no soul, no spirit. Just a body. And if you're good to look at, we'll keep you. And when you stop being good to look at, we'll get rid of you and trade you in for something younger and better looking. This is not the way Jesus treated women in the Bible. This is not the model of how a man sees a woman. The pervasiveness of pornography in our culture, its great failing is that it degradates women into just flesh. To manipulate objects of a man's desire. That's not who women are in the Bible. In the eyes of Jesus, they are human beings of full dignity and worth. And called to be parading in front of your drunken friends. That's dehumanizing. 
That's degrading. It's not the right thing for one human to do to another. It's wrong. And we must, as followers of Jesus, adopt the attitude of Jesus that he had toward the woman at the well, toward the woman in adultery that was cast before him, toward the women who followed him, and say, with God as my helper, I will treat women at work and in my family with the utmost dignity and respect. I will never objectify them as something to manipulate and use and be a decoration for me. I will always give them the dignity and value that my Savior Jesus gave to them. Even in a world where women are treated like decoration, God is still able. Okay? I mean, we got a king that's neither good nor wise. We got a king that is both drunk and angry. We got a man who treats women like they are pieces of meat. But God's still able, even in this context. And I want you to see how able God is in your context. Where you are, relationally, socially, at work, God is able. Don't you get hopeless? Don't you lose your peace? Don't you live fearfully? You just wake up every day saying, God, I know you're able. I am facing maybe great challenges, but I know that you are able. You're able to deliver thee, me. You are able to work in my life. You're able to work in my relationships. I'm trusting you. That's what Esther has to do. And that's what we must do. Now, the king has some counselors. He's got a team. Katie's five years old. She asked her mother this week, she says, what team is Pastor Crosby a fan of? I think they were watching LSU. And her mother said, well, I think he's a fan of LSU. And Katie kind of wrinkled her nose. And then uh, somebody else said, well, maybe he's a fan of Baylor, okay? I don't know. Well, I do like LSU, and I want them to win, especially when they play Mississippi State. I'm sorry. <laughs> All the Bulldogs. But look, look. I'm no fan of King Xerxes and his team, all right? When I look at King Xerxes and his team, I want to put a dunce hat on all of them because I think these counselors are fearful and fawning counselors. They're fearful of a volatile and violent king. They don't want to cross him. He elevates a, a matter of personal uh, marriage and intimacy. I mean, he and his wife ought to have an intimate relationship, right? They ought to be able to talk about things. Well, he puts this out publicly. As soon as, as, soon as she turns him down, he's going to the wise counselors here to make it a matter of justice and law. What shall we do here, man? The queen has said no. Heaven help us. What shall we do? And the counselors realize, hey, King Xerxes... He's really upset about this. What he is is he's wounded in his pride, right? 
He's insecure about himself because his wife now said no to him and he made the whole thing public to begin with. So he wants to give this thing some really weighty importance and his counselors help him out. They say, oh man, this is a terrible thing. I mean, Vashti's not only sinned against you, she's sinned against us. And she's done wrong to us. All the nobility, not just the nobility. Everybody listen to your kingdom. All 127 promises. This is an international crisis, king. And the king must be relieved to realize that yes, in his drunken stupor, he asked a silly question, got a bad answer. He's upset. And it is truly an international crisis over which he's upset. So they end up issuing the decree in all the languages of the empire that husbands are to rule in their homes. And the whole thing is to salve the wounded pride of a silly monarch. What lengths will you go to to justify yourself and salve your pride and make you feel better about what you've done, who you are? Are you secure enough in your walk with God to give that away not this king he can't and his counselors are manipulated by his power and prestige and they give him this notion of what he ought to do and this is what he does now next chapter we're going to see he begins to hurt because he's all by himself and we're going to see what he does in response to the counselors be careful who your counselors are by the way particularly in marital affairs see marriage is in trouble in Persia in 500 BC they're practicing polygamy this king is going to have a whole parade of virgins come to his bedroom. This is not a world you want to live in or be a woman in. It's not a place you'd choose. Marriage is in trouble. Some people say, hey, marriage is in trouble in the 21st century, and I agree. I know it is. Many of our marriages are failing. And some people are afraid of marriage because marriage is in trouble. There are folks who stop at the moment of commitment and say but do I really want to do this look at the marriages that have failed around me maybe my parents people that I respect the divorces that have happened and they stop at the point of commitment and they won't say I do and maybe that's what they should do but I want to tell you this morning that marriage has always been and will always be a bedrock institution in the human community. It is a relationship that is fundamental to our smaller communities and all other community in the human family. You know how good marriages stabilize the, the network of your family and friendship and what a blessing they are, not just to that couple, but to all the people that know them. You think about those strong, good marriages, and they come to mind, you think, man, I want a marriage like that. Why? Because that's a blessing to everybody, not just that husband and wife, but to all the people connected with it. I want a marriage like that. And let me tell you, you can have a good marriage under God, and it can be a blessing to you. 
It's hard for me to think of anything that's been a bigger blessing in my life for all these years than the marriage God gave me and Janet Rose Hamilton. I mean, it's, it's the biggest blessing in my life. And I'm so grateful for it. I'm not perfect. She's not perfect. The relationship's never been perfect. But it's been blessed and continues to be. We love each other more today than we ever loved each other. Our lives are entwined through all these years. And I know that our marriage stabilizes the communities of which we are a part. I don't want you to be fearful of the covenant of marriage. It's essential in the human family. It is blessed in its intimacy and the life that it gives, both physically, spiritually, and emotionally. It's a great thing to say I do to somebody who is likewise committed unto you. And for all of you who are already in the bond of marriage, maximize what God has given you. Is marriage in trouble in our generation? Yes. And it was in trouble in the medieval period, and it was in trouble in the first century, and it was in trouble in 500 B.C. Does that mean we quit doing it? No. The lifelong covenant delivers security, not only for the couple, but for their children, and for everybody affected in their circle of influence. In 508 B.C., where Queen Vashti and Esther lived, the king was neither good nor wise, but God is still able. The husband was drunken and angry, but God is still able. The counselors are fearful and fawning, but God is still able. Marriage is in trouble, but God is still able. And in 2014, at the beginning of this autumn, with all its difficulties, challenges, and troubles, God is still able. Bow with me, please. If you've been thinking of, about giving up, I want you to confess in your heart, God is able. God is still able. If trouble has come your way, it's blindsided you. You never knew you'd have to deal with this. Whisper as a prayer, God is still able. If you're fearful about the things that are coming on the world and you've watched the news and you're, you're anxious all the time because of it, you've got to say, God is still able. God is still able despite, despite the difficulties and the hardships I face. I pray, dear Lord, today that you will help us, your people, to embrace the truth of your providence and the Lordship of Christ that today we would receive the gift of peace and joy and hope despite the difficulties of life because you are a God who knows no limitation 
And I pray, dear Lord, that in the trouble that may beset us, that we might honor you by continuing to love you with all our heart, continuing to love people around us as we do ourselves. And so practice the walk of Jesus of Nazareth, who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray. Amen.